Good afternoon and welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm Ken Burton, your host this week. The Eco News Report is an exclusive feature of KHSU, brought to you by the NEC, publisher of our regional environmental newspaper, Eco News. You can find this show and other KHSU public affairs shows under programs at khsu.org. Those were calls of the marbled merlet, a small endangered seabird that nests in old-growth coniferous forests from Alaska to California. It's an enigmatic species whose nesting habits eluded us until the 1970s, by which time the vast majority of its nesting habitat had been destroyed. Little by little, we have unraveled some of the mystery surrounding this bird, and my guest today is one of the people responsible for that. Craig Strong is the founder of Crescent Coastal Research in Crescent City and has been living and breathing marbled merlets for the past, what, 20 years? 25. 25 years already. Wow. Well, thank you for being on the show today, Craig. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Yeah, my role in the merlet world is is limited to out at sea where we could actually see the birds and count them. And my job as one of a team of researchers working under the Northwest Forest Plan that Clinton started in 1994, my job is to track the populations of marbled merlets on the West Coast. And we have been doing this under the current program since year 2000, so we have now going into our 18th year this summer. The reason we count merlets at sea is, of course, because in the forest they are flying around at really high speeds in the dawn or dusk, and while you can see them, and hear them, there is no way you can get a handle on their populations. So our sampling design uses small boats close to shore where the merlets are, and it's been a rigorously statistically developed sampling program that we've continued in the same format every year. Mm -hmm. A lot of people spend a lot of time surveying merlets in the forest, but that's not being used at all for population level trend monitoring is just to establish stand occupancy. Is that right? Yep. For the most part, the inland surveys are done prior to a timber harvesting project. Because this is an endangered species, you are not allowed to harm it in the forest. And so they say a lot of people are out in the woods in the pre-dawn trying to detect if merlets are occupying a site or not, which would protect it from logging. There is some research inland surveys that go on as well trying to find nests because nests are extremely hard to locate and we can get a lot of information when we find a nest as to how they survive what who is preying on the the merlets in the nest Mm -hmm. that's a big problem kind of fish they're bringing in Mm -hmm. if you can get a camera mounted near the nest and actually do a season-long time-lapse video of merlet activity at that nest yields a a watershed of information about this species. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and understanding what they're eating is, of course, quite important. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But let's just let's spend a few minutes just talking about the species biology and how it got to be an endangered species. I, I kind of think of merlets as being a little bit 
schizophrenic <laughs> in nature. They, I mean, they can't, they can't quite figure out whether they want to be forest birds or seabirds. And, you know, we think about salmon, you know, as returning nutrients from the marine environment into the forest environment, kind of on an annual cycle. And merlets really do that kind of on a daily cycle, at least during the breeding season. Yeah, they sure do. I would choose the word enigmatic rather than schizophrenic. <laughs> but yeah, I meant it of, in the nicest way. Uh, among the many things that are unique about this little bird is, yeah, it spends its life at sea, eats fish, a lot of the same fish that salmon do, you mention it. But unlike other seabirds that rely on islands or cliffs to stay away from predators, the merlet, you know, relies on the big branches where they can lay an egg on a bare limb way up high so it's out of reach of terrestrial predators like snakes and raccoons and skunks and so forth. So what kind of forest has really big branches which are far enough apart so the bird can fly in and it's way up off the ground. Well, that's old growth. And so, of course, that's why the species is endangered because, as you said, most of the old growth has been taken out of our West Coast forests, only about 5 to 7% remaining. And what is remaining is mostly protected in national forests or in state and national parks. And we have the great example of that in our state and national redwood parks right here in Humboldt and Del Norte counties, which is a stronghold of merlet populations in California. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the remaining suitable habitat, because it's so much smaller than it used to be and so much more fragmented, has greater edge effects with you know a, a higher surface to volume ratio basically higher edge to interior ratio poses potential threats by increasing nest predation yeah exactly the merlets by nesting in big old trees have not escaped predation entirely and it comes mainly in the form of corvids that is jays cellar jays and crows and as you say can the the jays and crows tend to be on the edge of forests rather than the interior and so that more edges equals more jays and crows that would lead into a whole lot of discussion about the what people are doing to try and limit jay and crow populations for the benefit of merlets and again our north coast state and national parks are leaders in trying to curtail these predator populations for merlets mm-hmm. yeah i'm sure people who have have visited the parks have seen those feed a jay kill a merlet signs and i think that campaign's been pretty effective at least in reducing jay presence in campgrounds and picnic areas we can we can come back to whether you know whether that seems to be having an overall effect on merlet populations but you know because the merlet has this sort of dual lifestyle in reliant on two entirely separate ecosystems it it's subject to a, a wider variety of threats perhaps than some some other species of course there are issues going on in its marine environment as well you want to touch on those well, gill netting, getting caught in nets, has been a big problem for merlets, but not so much on our coast. This still is a problem up in the Puget Sound, what's called the Salish Sea, all the inland waters of Puget Sound, and a little bit in the estuaries. Oil spill continues to be a threat and does kill merlets. Each of our oil spills in the last 20 years, merlets have suffered mortality from those. Some of the settlement funding from those oil spills has been what has supported trying to reduce predation in the parks by crows and things. Because you see, like most seabirds, there's not a whole lot you can do 
for seabirds at sea. You can't mm-hmm. change the dynamics of the ocean currents that affect the, our, the prey resources, which is really important, but humans are not really in a good position to manage that at this point. But what you can do is try and buy habitat in the terms of old-growth forests and, and to improve that habitat in terms of reducing corvid predator numbers. And as you said, Ken, the reduction in jay campaign in state parks shows really good signs of success. I was just listening to talks both from the Santa Cruz subpopulation of Merlots and from our own North Coast Redwoods parks that counts of jays have gone down significantly since we've installed all this clean trash and don't leave any crumbs. I forget what all the terms are used. Crumb clean. Crumb clean. Crumb clean. (laughs) Yes. Don't feed the jays and there won't be so many jays. It really works. Mm-hmm. Not so good news for jay lovers, perhaps, but potentially good news for the merlet. What about overfishing? I mean, the, the just the effect of prey reduction. Is there much competition between between merlets and humans? Not directly. That is a subject I'm really interested in, but it's it's a complicated food web out there. And, mm-hmm. and the actual forage fish species that merlets and salmon and other seabirds eat smelt, herring, anchovy, sand lance, bait fish. Bait fish, they're mm-hmm. called, also known as forage fish. There's not a whole lot of commercial market for them directly, although they they have come and gone for Pacific sardines and for anchovies and herring. But direct competition is probably not such a big factor as trophic cascades like, for example, California sea lions are protected under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, and, and their numbers have zoomed in the recent decades and so they're also preying on these forage fish, and so they're introducing a, an predation pressure on the same species that merlets and other animals eat. That's just an example. And then there's salmon, which are high in everybody's mind in the Pacific Northwest because they're such an important commercial and recreational and spiritual animal. And they also prey on the same forage fish. So there's been a lot of research trying to figure out what what makes a good year for salmon probably also makes a good year for merlets. But as far as direct pressure by humans on the on the forage fish, I would say it's it's not high on the list of concerns right now. Okay, well that's one one little bit of good news. You mentioned the Northwest Forest Plan, which, to my understanding, kind of set the framework for marbled merlet habitat conservation in California, Oregon, and Washington, along with protection measures for northern spotted owl and salmonids. Can you just talk a little bit about some of the structure and details of that plan as they relate to merlet protection? Okay, I can try. And try not to be too boring in getting into the bureaucracy of the forest plan. It started in 1994 under Bill Clinton, as I said. And merlets are in there, both because they're endangered, but also as an indicator species of forest health, because they rely on these big old trees to reproduce, Mm -hmm. lay their eggs. Probably much better indicators of that than spotted owls are. Yeah, spotted owls, turns out, you know, not only they're not tied to the coast, they can be anywhere in the landscape, and they are not as restricted Mm -hmm. as merlets in their habitat requirements. They don't need big stands of big old growth. They're a little more flexible. I don't feel qualified to talk about spotted owls. (laughs) But the North Forest Plan, how it ties into merlets is that we monitor merlet populations 
to see how effective the Northwest Forest Plan is in conserving their nesting habitat. That's kind of the catchphrase for why it's tied to the Northwest Forest Plan. We also monitor their populations because they're endangered species and, and we need to know if they're increasing or decreasing. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the Eco News Report. My name is Ken Burton, and I'm speaking with Craig Strong of Crescent Coastal Research about marbled merlets. So let's talk a little bit about your at-sea monitoring work. That is really where your focus has been. Can you describe the basic protocol that you've been using? Okay, yeah. Well, and I imagine listeners want to hear the latest results of our monitoring as well. So what we do is we go out of different port on days, just on a day trip, three people on the boat, two observers and a driver, and count birds, drive Mm. along on a prescribed course and count everything we see. And of course, this has all been scientifically vetted. It's not just going and wandering around bird watching. We use line transect methods to estimate the distance of every merlet detection off our line of travel, and this converts to a a density of merlets per kilometer squared, and that, that gets extrapolated out to a population estimate for the target area. Because merlets are a really near-shore species, they pretty much just drop out entirely at three miles offshore, and most of them are within a mile of shore. Mm-hmm. So our sampling is really concentrated close to shore. I mean, I've seen them from a surfboard in, mm-hmm. in the waves. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've, close I've, to shore. I've heard them sometimes calling while walking on the beach. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've done some of those surveys with you and for you, and sometimes I feel like we're just trying to keep the boat out of the surf zone. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's an exciting area to be working, <laughs> especially if the swell is big. And it's also an area where not just merlets, but all kinds of marine life is concentrated right in that surf zone close to the edge of the ocean. And the merlets are certainly there. Um, and you cover the area from Coos Bay to San Francisco. Right? That's our area. Yeah. The, our sampling design, we have coast broken up into 20 kilometer long sampling units all the way from Canada down to San Francisco. And I I've been covering areas from the Columbia River down to San Francisco, but the area along the Humboldt, Del Norte, Mendocino coast is conservation zone four. We have six conservation zones designated by both the Northwest Forest Plan and the endangered species listing. So we're in zone four here, which goes from Coos Bay down to just south of Shelter Cove, mm-hmm. right about the Humboldt, Mendo County line. And the most recent estimate we've come up with for this zone is 8,500 and 50 birds, mm-hmm. which, which sounds yeah, like a lot, but just about the population of Crescent City. Yeah, that's <laughs> not a lot of seabirds, considering they probably were numbering in the millions here prior to logging, literally mm-hmm. millions. Mm-hmm. That estimate is actually one of the higher estimates we've come up with since year 2000. The 2015 estimate two years ago was actually the highest. So you leap to think, oh, well, their populations are going up. Well, that is possible. This zone has had an indication of a fairly steady population since we started surveys here. But the last two years are problematic with our results in that especially this last year, we have a lot of evidence that the birds moved. They Mm. failed up in Zone 3, up Mm. in Central Oregon, and came down here into Zone 4 and even into California so that we weren't really sampling the nesting population here. Right, there's no way to tell Zone 3 birds from Zone 4 birds at sea. Except that there was a radio tag study done in Zone 3, and that's how we really pinned it down. Well, the radio 
magbirds left their nesting area in central Oregon, came down here, and even down as far as close to San Francisco. This last year was really terrible in the Northern California current for prey resources, and not only merlets, but common murres also right. failed in their nesting efforts. Cormorants didn't do very well either. Cormorants did poorly, but not as badly as the alcid species. They all have their niche in the oceanic food web, and, and some cormorants did okay, but most of them did poorly, and, and a lot of cormorant colonies did fail entirely. So we have this movement, in-season immigration thing going on this year, and perhaps in 2015, so it's really thrown a monkey wrench in our population estimation, because we weren't expecting the birds to quit nesting and start moving around while we're trying to sample their nesting populations. Right. Um, As I recall from reading your report, the numbers in Zone 5, which is basically Point Arena to San Francisco, Shelter Cove, Cove, sorry, to San Francisco, are just off the charts. Yeah. It doesn't take much to be off the charts (laughs) down there, because uh, usually that whole region, Zone 5, it's called, from Shelter Cove to San Francisco, we We've found so few birds that the total estimate comes up at somewhere like 170 to 200 birds. Mm-hmm. A reflection of the lack of suitable nesting habitat right. in that region. That would be nesting there. And then this this last year, our estimate was 870 birds, something mm-hmm. like that. And obviously affected by an influx of birds coming down from the north. It's interesting that the little isolated subpopulation down in the Santa Cruz Mountains, which has had four to 600 birds, didn't show any any big increase this last year in 2017, and no radio tag birds moved down there. So it seemed like the migration event ended at San Francisco, actually right in Bolinas Bay there, right just north of mm. San Francisco. Well, and that fits with breeding success on the Farallon Islands, I think, which was not catastrophic last year. Right, yeah. The big crash that really happened in the whole ecosystem in the northern California current, that's Columbia River down to Cape Mendocino, did not appear to have gone farther south, and the Farallon Island Islands seabird colony did perfectly average, and we were down there surveying in Bolinas Bay, and uh, there was tons of birds and pelicans and whales all feeding on anchovies. So they were finding enough food down there, but not, not up here. Mm-hmm. So what happened? What do you think went on? Is this a, a blob thing? Oh, well, the blob... For those who've not heard of it, the blob is this very strange kind of a mutant El Nino warm water mass that showed up in the North Pacific in 2013 and persisted into 2017. It really hit our coasts in 2015 and 16, and anyone who's out in the water then probably remembers some gloriously warm temperatures getting up towards 60 degrees off the Humboldt coast. Well, that blob, warm water is generally bad news in the upwelling current like we have here. What makes a good year is strong upwelling of water, cold, nutrient-rich water, literally upwelling from the deeps up to the surface where the nutrients in that cold water feed the phytoplankton, the little microscopic one-celled plants. It's the base of the food system in the ocean. And then that feeds the zooplankton, the animal plankton, which feeds the forage fish that we've been talking about, and then on up to the seabirds and salmon. So I don't know what happened in response to the blob. It certainly upset the ecosystem as a whole. We saw a lot more warm water species in the copepod communities, and those don't have as much caloric food content for the zooplankton, which moves into the fish. One thing we do have comes from our from smelt fishing, a small group of smelt fishermen that center around Oric, and they quit catching surf smelt in 2016, and then night smelt, another really important forage fish in the area, dropped out in 2017. So it's turning out that those 
two species are really keystone prey for murres and murrelets in the area. We have other lines of evidence showing how important smelt are in the area, but mm. I think that was just the final straw and why it was such a catastrophic season. Seabirds in general are known to switch prey. You know, if one thing is not available having a bad year, then they'll switch to something else. Like they might be feeding on juvenile rockfish in a good cold water year and the rockfish are typically drop out during warm water years like El Nino years or this blob event and then they'll switch to anchovies, for Mm -hmm. example. Sand lance may be another possibility. Or sand lance. Sand lance are a big mystery because they see near the bottom where they don't show up on hydroacoustic sampling and they're eel shaped so they don't get caught in nets very easily and true to their name they actually burrow into the sand for part of their time so they're uncatchable and they're really important forage fish but there is very little known about them but apparently sand lance were really not available to our seabirds this last year and, and as well as smelt so there could be any number of things driving these shifts in prey distribution and abundance but i think most people would probably point to climate change initially as as at least one of the driving factors yeah climate change well that's what the blob was it was an unprecedented event never before seen caught all the oceanography and biologists by surprise, you know, what is this thing that had never happened before? And listening to the seabird community, people talk, the kind of the buzzword is unprecedented things are happening all over the ocean, both at the seabird trophic level and layers above and below that. Certainly the high Arctic is the biggest canary, if you will, in terms of climate change, where we've completely lost our ice cap and then in the north to a large extent and, and seabirds there have their biology and whole regions have collapsed because there's no ice there mm-hmm. and it affects seabirds to polar bears. Yeah, climate change is very real, obvious and a current event in the oceans right now. Yeah, and and not limited to the oceans, of course. There could be significant impacts to merlet breeding habitat as a result of climate change as well. You know, we know that redwoods are pretty dependent on summer fog, big contributor to their annual water demands, and then the increased potential risk of wildfires from hotter, drier climates. Yeah, well, I think you're probably more qualified to talk about that, Ken, than I am, because I I really am a marine biologist (laughs) and not well informed on the terrestrial ecosystem, although what you say is true, particularly about fires, drier forests catch fire more easily and burn more severely, as we have seen from some forest fire events in the last few years. And yes, it's climate change, but, you know, making the direct link that this equals that, it's never a direct path. Just how do you measure a drier forest and its likelihood to be have hotter and more destructive wildfires? Well, that's one of, been one of the big obstacles to selling the people in power on the significance of climate change to begin with. Right, yes. It's because there's a lot of natural variation. Politically, it's always possible to muddy the waters. In fact, that seems to be the primary primary strategy of our current administration, <laughs> muddying the waters. Muddying the waters. Well, if there is any silver lining to any of this, there's some evidence that redwoods are actually expanding their range northward. So it'll be a, a long, long time before those new redwoods are big enough to support marbled merlets, and it might not bode well for the Santa Cruz population if redwoods are shifting northward. Anyway, there is that. So we sort of entered the murky realm of politics here. In the past, there have been efforts 
by the forest products industry to get the Merlet delisted. Are you aware of any efforts to that end still going on? Yeah, that's a, a cheap way for the timber industry to keep pressure on the forces of conservation that keep them from cutting down the remaining trees, and they, they use it at regular intervals, you know, mounting a court challenge to why is the species listed. And we just came out of a five-year status review. If demanded, a endangered species has to have a status review performed to see if it still meets all the criteria. And the merlet came out as, yes, all of the threats that made it an endangered species still exist, and it is, in fact, even a greater candidate to be listed. And in Oregon, the species was just accepted to be uplisted from threatened to endangered status based on losses due to timber harvest and fire in large part. I haven't said yet about the overall entire West Coast population. Currently, it's about 20 or 21,000, and there is strong evidence of declining populations in Washington, both in the Puget Sound region and on the outer coast. And when you say West Coast, you're talking about just Washington to California, right? Yeah, Washington mm-hmm. to California, yeah. Merlots do exist and actually are in great numbers up in British Columbia and in southeast Alaska. But the listed species range and the one that is affected by the Northwest Forest Plan that I'm talking about is just the West Coast, yeah, from Canada down to the southern limit of their ranges in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Populations in Washington, significant decline in the time we've been watching them. In Oregon, there is evidence of a declining trend, but it is not statistically significant. And then down here in Zone 4 in California here, there is, by our surveys, an increasing trend, which is significant in Zone 4. A lot of that, however, is driven by the last two years of surveys, which are now suspect of having immigration effects. So they are at least holding their own here, and this may be due to the preserved habitat in our state and national parks and to the efforts of reducing predation on their nesting sites that we were talking about with the jays and crows and crumb-clean campgrounds mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So from that perspective, it's good news for the merlots that they seem to be holding their own. They are still a listed species, and there's every reason that they should continue to be because the populations are small. Maybe we can talk a little bit about productivity. Counting the the birds that you're seeing on the ocean isn't the only thing you're doing. You're also trying to get a handle on the ratio of young birds to adult birds. Yeah, the ratio of young birds to adults, how many chicks are produced per pair, is really the measure of reproductive success for seabirds. And we can't do that exactly on the nest for merlets, but we can get a ratio of how many young to how many adults we see out on the ocean. And another measure of productivity is just the density of young, how many young per square kilometer. Yeah, we do collect those data. It's a bit of an art to be able to distinguish the behaviors and plumages of the birds to make those ages determinations, but we've gotten good at it. And there's another strange thing about merlets is our evidence based on the number of young we see out on the ocean or the ratio is that they're hardly producing any young in any year. Mm -hmm. In a great year, they have maybe 2% of the population are juveniles, which suggests that they have to live 100 years for a hundred years. To reproduce, to replace themselves. To replace themselves, which we know doesn't happen. So there's some mysteries going on. Where do the young merlets go at sea? We don't yet have an answer to that. This Well, this, it's good to know you haven't put yourself out of a job yet. Yeah, well, this question is, is not limited to my research. It's all over, is where are the young merlets? If our measures of age ratios were accurate, the populations would all be on a very rapid road.
road to extinction, and that has not been the case. My latest hypothesis is that the the young birds, which are much more skittish of our boat, they freak out when a boat comes near because they're out on this ocean for the first time, and here comes a big monster approaching them, and and they flee. I think that what's happening is that a big proportion of them do flee and are never detected by our surveys, and that they're actually out there where we just are not seeing them. That's a little bit hard to quantify. Counting how, counting how many things you can't count. Uh-huh. Uh, so the mystery continues. We're exploring other ideas like doing shore-based surveys because the young birds do come in close to shore. Yes, we see more young birds close to shore and from shore-based surveys, but so far it's not quantified enough to account for the number of young that are missing. Mm-hmm. And another method is to do you use kayaks or other really less less intimidating less intimidating boats to get out there and get among the merlets. Of course, you can't cover a lot of ground with a kayak as you can with a power boat. Right. So there's trade-offs to every technique. And from shore, you know, there's only certain locations where you can see above the surf mm-hmm. and get a good look out to sea with a telescope. So, mm-hmm. what about all... beached bird surveys, such as the Coast Survey that's run out of the University of Washington? Mm-hmm. Do you think that has any potential? I mean, I've I've participated in some of the and we have never found a marbled merlet carcass on the beach when I've been involved. Yeah. But they must be dying, along with the other birds that are dying. They do, for sure. <laughs> the Coast Program and other beached bird programs up and down the West Coast are a great program. And I would encourage anyone who wants to get involved and likes to walk on beaches and look for interesting things to participate in the coast surveys. It also provides really good scientific data on, on what birds are washing in. Are they getting data on merlets? But mer- merlets, no. Merlets are of a size that they're really easily scavenged, and I think they get snapped up by gulls primarily mm-hmm. as I've actually seen it on two occasions during whale spills where hey there's a merlet oh there was a merlet and it's getting carried off by a gull you know on the spot so I think that the merlets get scavenged and because gulls can actually carry them away they really don't show up in the in the beached bird surveys interesting they appear but very rarely right what do you see in your crystal ball I see uh, merlet populations holding their own perhaps declining somewhat one of the things I'm trying to mount now is prey sampling in the near shore, basically catching forage fish to try and connect the dots as to what's species are out there and what are being brought back for murres and merlets to the colonies. And it's an exciting and challenging area of catching these little guys. And it's really hard to quantify. I mean, yeah, you can put a net in the water or jig for them and catch fish. But what does that mean in terms of prey availability and total populations? So that's something I'm excited about working on. And it ties in with climate change as well, because everything is changing, as I said, and the composition of important fish is likely to change too. It's only recently that we've discovered how important smelt are off our coast, and a lot of people don't even know which species of smelt. I was just reading some papers this morning talking about whitebait smelt being the a big keystone prey up in central Oregon, when in fact, when we put our nets in the water, we caught night smelt, which are a related species. Yeah. And they look the same in a bird bill, so they were being misidentified. This whole massive population of fish, we didn't even know what they were. So I think that's, a, that's an area of research I look forward to getting into. It's kind of like a, a voyage of discovery every year when we go out. Because things are changing, we don't know what we're going to find. So I really look forward to this next year. One last thing I should say is that our program 
four years ago got cut back due to federal funding so that now we only cover alternate zones per year. Mm -hmm. So this year, for example, 2018, I'm only surveying up north of Coos Bay in Oregon. And then next year, I'll be back down into zone four and surveying off our coasts here, which puts a big hole in our data, especially when birds are moving around. Well, especially when there seems to be so much year-to-year perturbation now. Right. Yeah. We're trying to get back to sampling the whole coast in every year, but that is an uphill battle, to say the least, in this era of reduced funding for mm-hmm. for agencies and trying to ask for more right now. Is, reduced sanity. Yeah, <laughs> it's a real challenge. So I hope that we'll get back to be able to sample the whole coast every year because there's right. a strong argument for it. But Fingers crossed. Well, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this to th- and also for your contribution to our knowledge of marbled merlets and seabirds in general. Oh, well, thanks, Ken. Yeah, I appreciate being on the program and having such an expert to interview me. And on that note of mutual admiration, this has been the Eco News Report. My name is Ken Burton, and I've been your host for the past half hour. I've been speaking with Craig Strong of Crescent Coastal Research about marbled merlets. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. If you'd like to replay this interview or share it with others, you can find it at khsu.org. And now available on podcast, subscribe at iTunes and leave us a review. Previous shows are also posted on the North Coast Environmental Center's website at yournec.org. The Eco News Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Many thanks, as always, to Fred McLaughlin for engineering. Join us again next week for the Eco News Report. <laughs>